0: Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to the Islamic Thoughts Podcast, episode 5. Today, I am your co host, host Adziz, along with my co host, Yahya. How are you doing today, Yahya?
1: Sorry. alhamdulillah, can't complain.
0: Alhamdulillah. And today, we have a very special guest with us today, uh, which is Zahir Dorrahman. Uh, how are you doing, Zahir? Alhamdulillah, Jazakallah khair for having me. Excited to be here. khair. Um, so, Today the topic will be the human fitrah, the natural disposition of a human being, some of the discussions that are required to actually understand what the fitrah is, uh, some of the notions that are passed today within contemporary times, both within uh, an academic light and also within a spiritual light, and the need for Muslims to sort of try and grasp or understand actually where does this leave us in terms of the Islamic scope that we have in terms of beliefs and so on. So before we actually get into the discussion, uh, Yahya, do you want to give a good, good brief introduction to uh, Brother Zahir?
1: Yeah, Alhamdulillah, I've known uh, Brother Zahir for quite a bit now, um, he's, uh, I knew him from my university days, very active mashallah, and helped out uh, the, the MSA in that field and most of you Most people who are listening to this probably know him from his his writings for Yaqeen Institute. Uh, He has a background in uh, life sciences, and he has also a background in uh, psychology, uh, and also, obviously, Islamic studies within Aqeedah and Hadith and so on. So, uh, inshallah, I don't want to break his back, but uh, it should be very beneficial.
0: Inshallah. And just just to add to that, um, there is quite a few good articles that we would definitely recommend. And what we will do is we'll actually include all of the links uh, to both Spiritual Perception and both to Yaqeen Institute uh, in the link description below. Um, so you guys can do so, sort of read further reading on this. And if you have any questions or interactions that you would like, you're more than welcome to join the server and ask the questions and interact directly. Um, so getting straight to it, I mean, Yahya, yeah. I mean, how do we even start this conversation? How do we even actually get into the discussion? Because fitrah tends to be a very, very big topic.
1: I think the beginning should be, um, building off of our last episode on uh, worldviews and coming to a worldview is, at the end of the day, we need to come to know how we know stuff. So I think it's appropriate to talk about what epistemology is as it's a word that's generally thrown out and not a lot of people know what it means. And it's very pertinent to understanding the, the rest of this discussion. So Brother here do you wanna to explain to the, the people what epistemology means?
2: So um, epistemology, well, first of all, I'd like to start off by thanking you guys again for bringing me here. And I think that this is a very important topic um, for the reasons you guys have mentioned, uh, but also as well, um, it's very important um, because we're going to show inshallah ta'ala through this uh, podcast uh, why uh, the fitrah is the number one tool or the most powerful tool uh, at our disposal to dismantling the doubts and the shubuhat that affect many young Muslims going through issues of crises of faith um, and even uh, issues of shahawat as well, um, issues of desires and changings of mor- changing morality and norms and things like that. So the fitrah is a very powerful concept So, in terms of what is epistemology, um, this kind of the fitra kind of falls within this, you know, Western term of epistemology, uh, the study of epistemology. Epistemology is, uh, in short, um, the study of knowledge. It's the study of how does a person know something uh, is true or false? How does a person come to any type of knowledge? So, there's epistemology, can refer to so many different uh, categories. So, you can have epistemology. Related to um, medicine, so how do we know uh, what is a uh, cure for a disease versus what is a uh, is, is bad for a disease? What is uh, a disease itself? How do we come to know these different things? Uh, and the answer to that, the epistemology of medicine, at least modern medicine, is the scientific pursuit, engaging in empirical investigations, experimentation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Also, interestingly, by the way, about the epistemology of medicine. Ibn al-Qayyim, actually goes in detail about issues of epistemology in medicine and in astronomy. Uh, because in his times, there were a lot of prevailing uh, attitudes regarding astrology in regards to the science of the stars, where people were saying things like the position of the stars determine certain events in the world and its effect on destiny, et cetera, et cetera. And he advocated for a kind of uh, objective, unbiased, empirical stance towards astronomy and, um, and, and essentially discarded with astrology, calling it pseudoscience. And he does this in Miftah Dar saada the keys of happiness uh, in, in this work. is a large work, uh, a couple of volumes. And it uh, essentially goes over his philosophy of science and his, his, the importance of having a firm epistemology when it comes to the natural world. Uh, And he also talks about medicine as well in uh, Zad al-Ma'ad. He talks about uh, the issue of medicine and whether or not people should blindly follow Greek tradition regarding medicine uh, and taking it over revelation and like the prophetic inscriptions versus tajribah, versus proper experimentation and tashrih. And literally tashrih is like dissections and actually uh, going through and understanding the anatomy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, In any case... it's a very interesting uh, uh, point uh, that epistemology was something that was a concern to uh, Muslim scholars, not just related to issues of God and theology in the world of the unseen, but also in re- regards to the issues of the natural world. Because um, if you don't have a proper epistemology uh, when it comes to the natural world, you will inevitably be invoking issues of falsehood to try to understand certain things. And that was seen to classical Islamic scholars as actually a um, a, a blasphemy against God because uh, if you say for instance in a pseudoscientific way about oh the stars are arranged in a particular way and are affecting something on this world you're actually giving power to the stars in the sky uh, which is not due to them which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not give to them and so that's actually a divine right that you are taking away and giving it to the creation which is the essence of shirk Um, and same thing goes with issues of medicine if you're giving these you know, special powers to natural forces where there is no actual legitimate cause and effect relationship, uh, then you're actually giving that entity, that natural entity, a, um, a, 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 a power and an agency that's, that it's not due. Um, and this could either be just an honest mistake or it could delve into this issue of giving them these supernatural powers. Um, in any case, uh, moving forward from that. So essentially epistemology is, How do you know about something? And so in relating to, I guess, what we're going to be focusing on, which is issues of theology, um, we're going to be focusing on, well, how do you know about God? How do you know about the world unseen? How do you know about uh, the existence of truth and all these different uh, issues? Um, And so that's the idea of epistemologists getting to that root of, okay, you can have a discussion about the existence of God, But the question is, do the two people who are having this discussion have a same epistemology? Do they have a same approach to getting the answer to that question? If they don't have the same approach, then you're just going to be butting heads and people are going to get nowhere. Um, And there is actually an interesting, uh, just an interesting um, demonstration of this issue of kind of competing epistemologies. Um, There was uh, recently uh, an interview uh, with Donald Trump. Um, I just saw it uh, today or yesterday, uh, where he was talking with one of the reporters from CNN about his call for the national state of emergency and whether or not it was justified. And was very interesting because it played on the issue of epistemology. So the reporter was citing certain statistics and saying that actually, statistically, native-born Americans are more likely to commit crime than uh, illegal immigrants. And then it, it was interesting because Trump then said, do you really believe those statistics? And he's like, just look outside And, you know, look at the prisons and you can see X, Y, Z. And so this was about competing epistemologies. The question was, well, is it dangerous, the fact that illegal immigrants are in America and is it producing this threat that's beyond normal? And the epistemology of the reporter of the CNN was, okay, let's look at statistical analyses. And for Trump, it was more, no, let's forget the statistics. Let's distrust that process for whatever reason. Let's just focus on your own lived experience. When you go outside, when you see you know, uh, uh, the prisons or whatever or wherever, however he sees them, what do you think? Just, and it wasn't really based on an empirical thing, it was more based on a hunch. He was really appealing towards this intuitive kind of idea that stereotype really that a person has about illegal immigrants and, and the salience that crimes occur, uh, that, that crimes are perpetrated by them, the salience at which, um, you know, that manifests in people's uh, minds, he was appealing to that aspect. So it's the idea of competing epistemologies Uh, that played out there. Um, And so that's why it's relevant as well regarding uh, belief in existence of God and whatnot, because a lot of people can have competing epistemologies. And that's why people don't come to a knowledge of God, because they might have an epistemology that is set up to
0: fail. When it comes to the modern age um, and the topic of epistemology, um, for the average Muslim, that doesn't really have uh, a deep understanding or a deep sort of, Um, interaction with the Islamic sciences and the ilm and actually knowing why epistemology is even important in this modern era, for him, when he's practicing his Islam and he has his beliefs on a day-to-day basis, there are going to be certain aspects of the Islamic sciences that are going to impact him. So when it comes to the interaction between seeing knowledge um, and then seeing what is actually the process to actually verify such knowledge, how does this these two aspects actually impact the muslim the average muslim who doesn't really have you know much academic capabilities per se um how does it even impact him to begin with
2: that's a very good question uh, about uh you know what's the thamar i guess you can say the fruit of uh studying this area for the average muslim um yeah. i think that um you describe the idea of okay there's a the difference between knowledge, and then there's how do you get to that knowledge, or the usul or the principles to you know attaining that knowledge. I think that for the average uh, Muslim, uh, it might not be necessary to discuss you know epistemology because, and we're going to come into this. Uh, actually, hmm. Allah subhanahu wa taala created within us a natural epistemology that does not need to be articulated. Uh, if a person is not exposed to all these different questions and doubts. A lot of times it just functions normally and it's something that does not be, is not required to be studied because it's just lived, it's common sense for people. You talk to a lot of people, especially people from the older generation, and you ask them why do you believe in, in God or whatnot, it's a question that the, the doubt of his existence doesn't even, didn't even occur to them. It's not even an issue that needs to be discussed for them. They have this kind of knowledge that comes to them and it's an automatic process that's coming from a pure fitra. Uh, so for an average Muslim who's not bothered by these questions, I don't think that this is important to uh, teach them as a very important first step, for instance. Um, definitely, if a person interested in kind of speaking and dialoguing with other people, then I think that this is an important area to study. But um, it, for instance, it, 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 going back to the example of medicine, your body works perfectly fine. The average person doesn't need to know about how the heart works. The heart will pump its blood, whether you know it or not. The same thing with the fitrah, whether you know it or not, it will operate in your mind. Yes, it can be, you know, disease, it can be corrupted, just like the heart. And in which case, then it's about going to, uh, for the average person it's we're going to, uh, you know, learning more about it and understanding its processes and what, you know, what harms it, what doesn't harm it, et cetera, et cetera. But if it's working fine and there's no issues, then I don't think it's something that really requires, uh, uh, to requires, uh, you know, in-depth study. But if there's a person that's encountering doubt and, you know, there's issues there, a sign of kind of a uh, a perturbed fitra. Then that's something that I think is very important for them to understand and recognize uh, the significance of the fitra and what exactly it is.
1: So I think that goes into our next segment, the maybe the absolute question of this podcast: what exactly is the fitra?
2: Yeah. So I mean, the fitra is a term that's used in the Quran uh, in Surah Al-Rum. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, mentions uh, the fitrat Allah <laughs> lati fatra nasa The fitra, uh, which comes from fatra, which is that concept of origination, uh, the concept of creation. Um, and Allah describes it as his fitra. It's the way in which Allah created people. Uh, and so when you look at kind of the tafsir and the way that the fitra is understood, people look at the fitra different ways. People talk about fitra from a physical way. The physical fitra, the kind of physical behaviors that people kind of engage in that's, quote-unquote, from the fitra. Excuse me. Um, things like trimming the nails and, you know, uh, trimming the armpit hairs and whatnot. Um, you know, these things are described as from the fitra. Uh, but there's also that kind of spiritual, psychological aspect of the fitra. Uh, so in a, it, it, it's hard to find a proper English translation for it, but I think, um, you know, Terms such as uh, kind of the natural predisposition, uh, the, uh, you know, the inbuilt um, constitution, the kind of factory, the default factory setting uh, on which uh, human beings have been set. Uh, That's kind of the idea there. So the fitrah represents a person's natural way of perceiving the world their natural way of looking at the world. Um, That's really in essence what the fitra is. Um, So that's kind of a short answer to the question. Obviously we can go on and on and on about, okay, well, what that does entail. I will mention some important points about the fitra. Um, So a lot of times uh, when people talk about the fitra, they kind of put it in juxtaposition of the aql, of the intellect. Um, And, you know, they kind of say, okay, is this something that's based? So they talk about, for instance, the existence of God. And when someone says, for instance, oh, uh, that's known by the fitra, there's this concept, there's this idea that, oh, that means that, you know, it's not a logical thing. It can't be, quote unquote, logically proven. Um, I think it's more, whether that statement's true or not, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, uh, who was a scholar who passed away in the eighth century of Islam, Um, He was a theologian uh, and, I mean, controversial from his time, really, until our times. uh, But no one really can deny his contribution to the field of what you can call, if you want, Islamic epistemology. He was very much concerned with the idea of how do we come to know things about Allah, um, know who he is, uh, know his revelation, and obviously as well, know his existence. Um, So uh, in in his works... um, he describes the fitrah and, and he talks about the, the difference between the aql and the fitrah. He, he actually says, the, in the fitrah, fitra like in the fitrah is the recognition of the aql. Like you can't separate them because what we said, the natural way of human beings perceiving the world. And this goes back into a bit of cognitive psychology. You know, when we perceive the world, people think like it's like a, a mirror, like in our brain, right? Like it's just something that we just reflect what's actually out there. Actually, what we know is that the human brain engages in so much processing of the stimuli that comes to it the visual, auditory stimuli, the tactile stimuli, the olfactory stimuli, all the stimuli that comes to it. Um, the human brain doesn't just reflect that into your mind or into your super lobe. There's processing that occurs at so many different areas of your brain. And this processing takes that stimuli, which is really just light at the end of the day, undifferentiated light that's coming to your retina. It takes that and it interprets it. Every single brain is interpreting it and processing it. And so for instance, when you look outside, when you're looking at your desk, for instance, wherever you are right now, and you look wherever you are, you're probably going to see mobile device, table, chair, uh, roads, uh, trees, those things occur to your mind almost instantaneously. Those categorizations—this uh, is this is a this is, a, this is a, a, a table, which is a separate object than the uh, laptop that's on top of it. That's uh, processing that occurs in the mind. Because at the end of the day, why did you make the? What, how did you decide that they were two separate objects? How did you come to know that? It's just natural. It's the way that you naturally perceive it. Because human beings are naturally designed by Allah Subhanahu taala to be able to perceive uh, different objects even if they are
0: connected with one another one thing to really add to that would be um, this issue of morality because today um, especially living in secular times the the question of morality becomes you know very very important for every single individual so then the sort of the question becomes is that the way in which we can categorize the aqal or the intellect uh, and view it through the scope of the fitrah, can the same actually be said for morality uh, even though we're stepping, taking a step back here, uh, stepping back from the framework of religious morality and actually seeing that does the fitrah encompass any level of morality? Because I know that uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, he was of the opinion that actually even justice within itself is from the fitrah. So I mean from a psychological perspective and you know both from a uh, epistemological perspective where does the morality fit into it if it does at all Very good question. Um so
2: just kind of finishing tidying up what my last point and and it kind of goes perfectly into your into this question. So the idea is that human beings engage in this natural processing in their brain and when stimuli come to them they naturally categorize them into different things whether that's objects whether that's cause cause and effect relationships, whether it's all these things, these are naturally inborn into our minds They're not something that requires to be taught. We naturally kind of come to this. And that's why if you look in the field of developmental psychology, they go into a lot about uh, kind of uh, how a child kind of learns about the world without really being taught. They're just this natural instinct that comes regarding language. So grammar, it's shown as well that, uh, you know, syntax is something that uh, it comes almost biologically to a child, that a child kind of gets the concept of grammar rules uh, at a very young age before he's formally taught. In any case, moving forward. So like we said, fitra is really the natural way that a person looks at the world. And so we can look at the world from an intellectual perspective in terms of kind of rational principles. So logic and rational principles, the, the idea that, you know, um, uh, the whole uh, is greater than, you know, its parts. Uh, the idea that a thing cannot be, you know, dead and alive at the same time, these types of kind of uh, rational absurdities naturally come to us as something that doesn't make sense. So that's kind of the natural way that we see the world. We're not taught that. It's just the way that our human mind views the world and perceives world and reality. Now, when it comes to moral categorization, it extends to moral categorizations of good and bad as well. So when we look outside and we look at the world and we see things, we look at it from an intellectual perspective, from a physical perspective, we kind of see and categorize and interpret things as cause and effect as kind of uh, object as, uh, you know, separate objects as, uh, you know, categorizations. This is a tree. It's part of the, you know, the family of trees, et cetera, et cetera. All these different things were just coming to us instinctually. Also the categorization of human behavior as good and bad is something that's also instinctual as well. And there's a lot of work done in this, um, uh, in, uh, in developmental psychology as well. There's two, uh, works that I would recommend. There's one born believers. And there's another one on uh, called Just Babies. The Born Believers is by Justin uh, Barrett or Barrett. Uh, the second one is uh, Born Believers. I forgot the name of the author. Uh, but uh, those are two very good books that explore a lot of different child psychology studies at, at, the, at the level of infant, like literally eight months to 12 months to toddlers. And they explore their beliefs and the way that they See the world the way that they naturally see the world, which is really getting in tune with that concept of what is that fitra, what is the natural way that human beings perceive the world. Um, so the perception of the world comes under moral lens. There's a moral lens in our mind wherever it is. There's a moral lens by which we categorize human behavior. There's a rational lens by which we make sense of the world around us uh, and understand what's you know what's an absurdity, what's a possibility, what's an impossibility, um, and there's that kind of i guess a f- empirical lens uh as well as we kind of look for patterns in nature and see how things are naturally connected and relate to one another um so kind of those are that's in the nutshell the fitra in that sense the fitra is a kind of a holistic um uh, a comprehensive set of lenses you can say by which a human being sees the world naturally um and so the significance of this is that if maybe i think we'll cut this i think we will um we will uh tackle this inshallah ta'ala uh as at the course of the of this conversation so i'll leave it at that for now
1: so zohair um one thing that especially nowadays as more and more people are engaging like there's a massive islamic information coming out and the concept of uh rationality right that you need to rationally prove things that, uh, you know, systemized logic is, is getting more widespread within the Muslim community and w- more widespread amongst people who, who are becoming more literate in the Islamic sciences. So how would, you know, the traditional understanding of logic fit in with our understanding of it?
2: Very good question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would take us way back to the beginning at this point. Um, you can really find in the Western stream of thought, uh, from its inception, uh, if you want to call it its inception, but rather from its roots in Greek, uh, Hellenistic, uh, philo- Greek philosophy in the Hellenistic period, um, you find that Western civilization has kind of followed the tradition of the Greeks. And um, the Greeks introduced this very skeptical Uh, skeptic-oriented epistemology, you can say, uh, of being skeptical of everything and focusing on logic as the primary, or I mean, they all differed. Some was logic, some was empiricism, um, some were just completely Pyronian skeptics who just kind of doubted everything, even their even their empirical senses and their logic. And so they were kind of left with this uh, kind of left with this uh, view of like, you know, like, the, like doubting whether or not, you know, they exist or whatever is around them exists or be, whether they're in a matrix or whatnot, and um, whether they're still dreaming or they're, 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 dream, whether they're still dreaming or they're awake, all these different things. So kind of coming from that, the West carries this legacy of kind of this extreme skepticism and this critical attitude, um, which is actually a very good thing when it comes to issues of the world. As we've seen, Western civilization has been able to flourish as it has and a lot of that, people kind of owe that to the, you know, the scrutiny of the scientific method and whatnot. There's actually an interesting hadith as well, narration where the Prophet ﷺ praises uh, the Romans, and you know, from that we would really say Western civilization um, for some qualities that they have um, that makes them successful. Um, and one of them is this kind of critical attitude that they have towards themselves and the accountability that they have towards their leaders in government. In any case. That's a whole nother discussion. Um, the point is that uh, this kind of epistemology that the West has inherited is extremely skeptical. And what had happened was that because it was so skeptical and challenged you know, the most basic notions of truth and falsehood and logic and, and reasoning and whatnot, um, it, it completely destroyed uh, any uh, 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 kind of real, uh, uh, taking Christianity um, you know, seriously. Uh, any real kind of belief in God or whatnot. Um, and so this logic, uh, uh, this kind of overemphasis on logic to come to truth, uh, which is something we're all taught when we you know as as young as uh, you know elementary school onwards, this the epistemology of the West, this idea of question everything, this idea of you know if it's not logical or you can't see it, then it's you know then then it's then it's doubtful, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's kind of an unnatural way of seeing the world. It's not in line with the fitra. Human beings don't you know, naturally, as they go on their day-to-day, um, actually like, make sure that they have a syllogistic argument with a, uh, two premises and a conclusion and make sure that they're cogent. When they come to decisions about things, um, that's not the process that they engage in. They come to know about things through other processes, through intuition. Um, through, um, you know, uh, moral, uh, you know, moral reasoning, which is different from logical reasoning. Uh, how does a person, you know, n- you know, just come to know that's not fair or whatnot, or that's unjust. It's not through any logical process. Um, so th- th- the problem obviously is that logic is kind of given this status or and beyond logic as well, really um, what went beyond logic was uh, the empiricism because you know after kind of the philo- philosophers couldn't really get much traction you couldn't really do anything because all they were doing was really just doubting everything then you have the scientific revolution uh, and now you have this focus on empiricism uh, this idea of okay forget logic or whatever it's all about what you can see what you can predict of the data um, you know what uh, are the things that you can uh, prove in, in a, in a, in a, in a lab- laboratory all those different things um, so that kind of shift happened in the last couple of centuries and the focus has been a lot on empiricism so there's kind of these two different schools like the philosopher rationalists or the scientific scientific uh, empiricists um and so neither of these camps uh but for both of these camps there's really no serious conception of god no serious uh conception of god that actually would have a, a impact on a person's life but what has happened is that Muslims who have grown up in the West, um, who have kind of learned these kind of uh, uh, ways of, uh, of, uh, of scrutinizing, you know, information and whatnot, they've attempted to use these different approaches to prove God's existence and to show, no, it's not absurd uh, to believe in God, even if you look at it from a purely logical perspective, or if you look at it from an empirical perspective. Um, and so in doing so, uh, many Muslims have uh, failed in trying to, you know, convince themselves, other Muslims, non-Muslims, uh, that, you know, God is true based upon these different approaches. Um, I mean, you have, for instance, in regards from a logical perspective, people talk about the, uh, you know, the Kalam cosmological argument. It's, uh, it's you, know, you know, hundreds years of uh, centuries old argument Uh, that finds its roots actually in millennia, uh, in Aristotle's argument for God's existence. Um, It's something that's been debated, you know, throughout time up until now. Um, And, you know, it it doesn't really, and actually Ibn Taymiyyah himself criticized this argument and says this just brings about doubt. It doesn't bring about certain knowledge about God's existence. And on the other side, you have, you know, empirical kind of ways where people talk about ideas of, um, you know, intelligent design and Christian evangelicals and and Catholics are really behind this intelligent design movement and trying to prove God by showing uh, different, you know, uh, different aspects of of science and showing that, you know, science proves God's existence by, uh, you know, this anthropic principle or this idea that the universe is fine-tuned for living and they show different aspects to show that, hey, this has to be intelligent design, et cetera, et cetera. Now, from both perspectives, what they're saying is true, obviously. No one's going to dispute that, that, yes, the Kalam Cosmolog- Cosmolog- Cosmological Argument argues that, you know, this universe was created, it had a beginning, and so, you know, Allah, must, Allah created the universe. We would agree with that. Uh, the, you know, the intelligent design people, when they talk about how everything's beautifully fine-tuned, the Quran mentions this. I mean, no one's disputing these aspects. What we're disputing is whether or not this can be used to convince a skeptic whether or not this can be used to convince a skeptic. It can definitely be used to increase the iman of a believer. It could even be used to convince a person with a, you know, a proper fitrah. We're going to go to that. Someone who's not trying to you know, uh, learn about God through this kind of uh, pigeonholed epistemology of just logic or just kind of empirical um, uh, uh, investigation. Um, but for those people who are you know, stuck in that pigeonhole, Uh, then for them, this is not going to convince them. And Muslims who are still stuck in that way of looking at the world, they'll find themselves never uh, able to find uh, a cure for their doubt because um, there's really no way out of doubt if a person approaches it from the rationalistic or empiricist mindset. And the reason for that is quite simple. Uh, There's an interesting uh, philosophical conundrum called Munchausen's Trilemma, um, and Munchausen was a uh, interesting figure in history. Uh, not a lot if he really existed, but he was this person known for telling tall tales. Actually, in medicine, there's a syndrome called Munchausen syndrome, and it's given labeled to patients who basically make up their disorder, and they come to the hospital looking for basically just attention and whatnot, and they just make things up about you know what they have. But there, and there's also relevance in philosophy because Munchausen, uh, Munchausen's trilemma is the idea that um, when it comes to to anything that a person knows, that there's a trilemma. In the sense that um, either that person knows that thing because of a, 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 a logical argument, for instance. But the problem is, is that this justification for that knowledge will go into one of three ways which are all untenable. Number one is, okay, it will go to an infinite regress. So for instance, a person says, this is a logical argument for A. And then a person will ask, well, what's the logical argument for that logical argument? Well, what's the logical argument for that logical argument? Until it gets to the point, well, that's just logic. That's how it works. Then you have to ask the question, well, what's the logical argument that we should trust our logic? And it goes on into infinity. And so then that's one line. The other line is, so that's infinitism. The other line is foundationalism, where you take it to a foundation like rationalism or empiricism, and you just say, that's it, full stop. We just trust our logic and that's just the way it is. Or if you don't do it that way, or it goes into kind of a circularity, circular reasoning, which is this idea of, okay, either it goes to, uh, you know, X proves Y. And uh, what proves X? Well, Uh, Y proves X. So Y proves X and X proves Y. So it's this kind of circular reasoning. Um, And so in any case, the reason why I'm I'm, I'm saying this is because uh, it demonstrates the idea that if a person has this limited epistemology, they actually can't know anything because they cannot escape the Munchausen's trilemma. Everything is going to be called to question and doubted. Reason itself can be doubted. If a person says, I'll only believe something that has a logical argument, But you just have to ask, well, what's the logical argument for that statement you just made? I will only believe in something that has a logical argument. What's the logical argument to say logic brings about truth? What's the logical argument for that? There is none. It can't exist itself. That's just going to be circular reasoning. Uh, Same thing with empiricism as well. Oh, when I see it, it's true. Well, what's the empirical proof that what you see is true? There is none. You can't prove it. And so this is the reason why this approach of Western skepticism is futile. And the Quran references this concept. I mean, it's not just Western in origin. The skeptic mindset is really culturally the West has taken it on as its culture. But skepticism is something that exists throughout all civilizations and cultures on the individual level. And the Quran, you can say, so a lot of people say, for instance, oh, the Quran doesn't really address atheists. And I would say by and large, it's true in the sense that the Quran is not addressed to the belief of, you know, there's, you know, the the Quran is not clearly not um, uh, uh, interested in uh, proving God's existence to someone who doubts God's existence. But definitely the Quran is addressed primarily to the skeptic, to the skeptic attitude, to the person that's just constantly skeptical. And that's why you find constantly terms like shak, raib, uh, both of them essentially meaning doubt and skepticism, uh, van conjecture, it's addressing an attitude of skepticism. Underlying that skepticism is a bunch of kind of moral and psychological issues that brings forth the skepticism. That's another thing. A lot of people think, oh, when we talk about the existence of God or whatnot, it's is purely philosophical enterprise. No, it's not. It, it includes so many different factors, a person's moral character, a person's spiritual spirituality. Uh, it, it all comes together to produce a person's set of beliefs. Uh, inshallah, maybe we can explore that later. But my point from saying this is that um, when it comes to, uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 Quran's, uh, kind of main focus towards the skeptic, the Quran constantly says, when the skeptic asks, uh, you know, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, uh, you know, show us a sign constantly, or, you know, other prophets, um, you know, even the Bani Israel, they were revelation, they were not God skeptics, they were revelation skeptics. Anytime a prophet came, they'd say, oh, well, prove to me that you're really from God, right? They're revelation skeptics. And the Quran uh, beautifully uh, and succinctly uh, explains uh, the problem uh, with the skeptic attitude and the reason why nothing will ever satisfy the skeptic attitude. Because there's this idea of, well, if Islam is true, then it should be able to, its truth should be known to everyone. Everyone can, can, should be able to understand it. But the Quran explains, no, there are certain people that because their epistemology is such, uh, they'll never actually come to, belief, never, never, never come to faith, no matter you know, if you warn them or if you don't warn them. They won't uh, they won't believe. And so the Quran, for instance, says, um, you know, oh, they ask you for a sign, say that, you know, if we were to give them a sign and opened up the heavens and they were, you know, ascending to heaven and they were seeing all of that, what would they say? No, uh, you know, we're hallucinating. You know, this is this is not happening. We're just this is just a hallucination of our of our of our eyes. And, uh, you know, or, you know, we're just bewitched. We just, you know, some magic's been done to us. So you see that even the strongest sign that they themselves are saying, okay, once I get this sign, then I'll believe the Quran explains. No, you won't believe because you can always be skeptical about anything if you want to. And even the most clearest sign, you can easily dismiss it by saying, Oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just hallucinating. How do I know that I'm actually seeing it? How do I know that it's not something else that's going on? How do I know? I mean, they use, they, they invoked the term of, you know, uh, sorcery or whatnot. In our times, people wouldn't say that, you know, the skeptic wouldn't say that. They'd say things like, oh, you put something in my drink. How do I know that, what, you, know, you know, I, I was drugged. I'm on, a LC, I'm on LCD or something like that. Like, I, 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 I'm on um, you know, hallucinogens, so, um you know, LED and whatnot. So uh, that would be kind of the modern equivalent. So the idea is that, kind of to summarize all of that, uh, the idea is that, um, you know, the, the skeptic, Uh, who says that I'm only going to believe, you know, what's logical or or, or reason or or what's based on reason and other persons, I'm only going to believe what I can see. Um, There are two issues. Number one is that uh, it's self-refuting because if you say that I'm only going to believe what can be proved by logic, well, that statement you just made cannot be proved by logic. So you can't make that statement. Uh, Same thing with the case with the empiricist and number two, and this is an important thing as well. Um, that epistemology and that approach—if you take that approach—you actually deny so many things that you yourself believe, and so many other people believe. Um, so, for instance, if you—if um, uh, you say, "Oh, I won't even believe what I can see," well, you can't see moral values. Do you believe in justice? And do you—you know—do you commit yourself to justice and 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 living fairly? Um, well, if you do, that can't be empirically proven. So, where are you getting that from? Uh, you should, you know disregard that uh, belief as well so it, it creates a lot of problems
1: so one can say that what makes a fitrah different from these other epistemologies can it not be also self-refuting that you're relying upon something to then say oh I, this is truth that how do you know fitrah is true from revelation how do you know revolution is true it's from the fitrah
2: okay very good question and this kind of gets to the crux of the idea of why uh, the fitrah is kind of the most powerful tool we have to understanding the truth. So it comes down to one decision that everyone needs to make. And the fundamental decision everyone needs to make is, is there meaning in the world or isn't there meaning in the world? That's the first question. And the Quran presents this uh, dilemma, you can say, to all the human beings as haq versus batil. And it's interesting these terms, haq and batal. Haq uh, means truth, and it also carries the connotation of purpose, uh, like, bil-haqq, who created the heavens and the earth with purpose. And it also uh, 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 carries the connotation of rights and responsibilities, like, that's my haq over you, or that's their haq that I need to fulfill. Uh, so it's very interesting. Truth from an Islamic perspective is is, uh, is, is, is not just theoretical explanations of you know, something that can be logically proven through a particular way. Truth is a very holistic uh, understanding of what is true, which is different from the Western view of truth. And that's an important thing that people need to understand that when a person says, I'm trying to understand what's true, um, really what they're trying to say is they're trying to understand what's meaningful. And that's what the Quranic term is for truth. It's what's meaningful. What is, what is purposeful? What is, you know, uh, uh, what is your responsibility In this world uh, and you know what is the truth in general Uh, those are the terms that are used to describe truth uh, from a Quranic perspective Um, and so when you see truth in that light and not in the western kind of conception of truth because realize the western conception of truth you'll never get to truth and that was the whole point uh, with Immanuel Kant and and other western philosophers they reached a point where they said well we can't really you know a pure critique of reason by uh, Immanuel Kant you can't really there's an issue here there's a problem here with trying to prove things based on our way you can't uh you know there's there's no real way of understanding truth in any objective way because everything can be doubted and this is what has led to what we see now in kind of postmodern philosophy this idea of okay if objectively things can't be proven then let's focus on the subjective let's focus on subjectively what people think is true and that's just true for them and so from there you have this you know popular cultural cliches of like you know you live your truth and you know you do what you believe, and everything's very subjective. No one can tell you who you are. No one can tell you your identity. It's about you, et cetera, et cetera. All these different kind of cliches uh, that we hear is stemming from the demolition of any concept of objective knowledge and of any objective meaning in the world. And it comes from the way that the West had conceived of truth. But from the Quranic conception of truth, it's holistic. haqq isn't just about you know theoretical plausibility from logic. Truth is about what's your purpose? What's the purpose? Because when you want to know something, actually, and this is interesting, intuitively, when I say to you that, uh, you know, what is this device, this phone device, when I say, what is it? You know, a person can describe the material and say, well, it's glass and some metallic substances, and some complex wiring. They've described, you know, what it is, but they haven't actually told you what it is, right? If someone were to, if you were to show someone a phone, and they said it's some sort of a you know, glass you know, casing, and they describe it perfectly. You would, you would say after that, well, you, you don't know what this is. Even though they describe the exact material, why would you say they don't know what it is? Because you didn't actually reveal its purpose. Once the person says, oh, that's a cell phone, in that name carries, the, what makes this a cell phone rather than a glass box is its purpose. It is used to communicate and to do so much more. That is what determines what a thing is. It's its purpose a lot of the time. A chair. What makes a chair a chair is that you sit on it, right? Rather than, oh, it's a wooden substance. that like You don't really know what it is until you know its purpose. That's the idea of truth. Truth informs a perp- person of purpose. And so obviously the biggest question is, what's the purpose of life? That's part of truth. If you deny that there is a purpose at all, then you've denied the existence of that thing, really. It's not really anything then. Um, in any case, so truth is this kind of holistic conception that the Quran puts forth. And batil. Batil is... It's not just you know, wrong, it's like purposeless, devoid of purpose, it's useless, it's batal. it doesn't make, it's totally useless, it's totally purposeless. So that's the, the, the decision that human beings need to make at the beginning, which is, do I want to find, is there haq in the world to search after? Or is this world just batil? That's the kind of two choices that a person has. And when it comes to uh, the idea of, you know, okay, how do you make this choice? So this is where it comes in. This is, wh- this is where the idea of the fitra comes in. From the fitra, we know, and this is the case when you look at the data, you look at the, uh, the studies in psychology, you look at anything, you even understand yourself, everyone knows that yes, instinctively, human beings naturally inclined towards a view of the world that there's haqq, there's truth in the world, there's meaning to be discovered, and there is a purpose to be fulfilled. That's just the natural way that we view things. And, you know, this is something that's not disputed, even by atheists, that human beings are kind of hardwired to think like this and to search after meaning in life and to believe in God uh, and to believe in things beyond this world and to search after for a purpose. It's an instinct that's there, just like the instinct to, you know, reason about things and to see the world in 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 a logical fashion. Uh, just as just the same instinct that the same place where that instinct arises is the same place that the spiritual instinct arises as well. And kind of holistically, that's all the fitra. So taking all that together, the moral instinct, the, the intellectual instinct, the spiritual instinct, all that together comprises of what the fitra is, and it points a person towards that there's truth in this world to be discovered. If you take that, and if you say, okay, I'm going to trust this feeling and this yearning I have in myself, then you are now on the journey towards discovering truth. And if you do that, then you have to search for something that makes sense of this entire world, your life, and everything. You need something to render this world meaningful. And if the world emerged from you know, just, random, uh, just uh, you know, random collisions, it was just randomly uh, uh, arranged in this particular way, then there's no meaning in the world. Because meaning requires intentionality, there had to be a reason why things are the way they are, then that's where meaning arises from. If there's no reason, there's no meaning behind it. It's just random. There's no such thing as an explanation, because it was randomness. When someone asks, why is it this particular way? There is no real reason. You just say, oh, that's just the way that it it was. It was random. And so you deny meaning when you say that the world was arranged just randomly. Um, And so if you say that the world is arranged randomly, you take the bottle route. And this is what most consistent atheists will say you know proper atheists atheists who are philosophers will admit there's no meaning in the world it was all just random everything is a figment of our imagination including our kind of our beliefs about our own selves like our self-identity that we believe that you know Yahya exists that Astas exists that Zohair exists like me as an entity that's just a figment of our imagination there's no real meaning behind it we're just random globs of particles put together we don't really exist and subhanallah from that the verse comes to mind uh, don't be like those who forgot Allah, they forgot themselves. Because without Allah, without a wise creator that arranged this world the way that it is, there is no meaning that can emerge from it. Um, and so that's the fundamental decision that we need to make. If you say that the world is meaningful, necessarily that means then that this world uh, has a purpose. And when you say that the world has a purpose, then that means that. Uh, there was someone that created it for a particular purpose. So nested in the idea that there's meaning in the world is a belief in God in a creator. Um, and if you say then that, no, there is no creator, this is random, then you've denied meaning itself. So the fundamental decision a person needs to make is, is this world meaningful or meaningless? That's the first point that people need to make. And if they say it's meaningful, then خلاص, in order to be consistent, then that means that, you know, that there is a reason for their being, there's a reason for the world, there's a reason for the way that things are. That means that there was a non-random way that the world was arranged and you yourself is, is, is a non-random occurrence of this world, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and all those concepts. Now the question is, okay, fine. I see that that's the kind of two paths you take. So then why do we trust the fitra? Does not that go back to foundationalism in the, in the Munchausen's Trilemma? Well, it doesn't because actually Um, the fitrah is the only option that a person can have in this world when you think about it because if you take the meaningless route and you say oh this world is just meaningless and you take that choice then actually it's self-refuting again it's self-refuting because when you say there's no meaning to this world then that statement itself you've just used meaning to deny meaning you've just used your rational faculties supposedly to deny meaning to deny reason itself, because you're saying, oh, reason is also just uh, evolved randomly. Well, you've used it to make an objective statement. So you can't do that. So it's actually incoherent. It's irrational. It's implausible. It's impotent. It's everything. It's every negative thing under the sun. It's a completely absurd notion to say that. It in itself is a contradictory statement to say there's no meaning in the world because you've said a statement of meaning. So how could there be no meaning in the world if you've made a statement of meaning to deny that meaning?
0: What's really interesting is that um, when we say this concept of meaning and you know the truth having some level of meaning to it, one ayah comes to mind, and this was one of the ayah that we mentioned before when we were going through the journey to Islamic thinking, which was when Allah z. says, uh, What's really interesting about the ayah is when Allah says that, do they not contemplate in the Ayah of Quran or are their hearts sealed, is that he mentions specifically the heart uh, instead of the intellect or instead of the mind or instead of mm. an individual's thoughts. He mentions directly the heart and the heart's being sealed, which ties in like really, really well with the fact that actually what is truth? And I mean, the whole aspect of truth having some level of meaning to it um and that goes in line with purpose and so on and so forth um which is really really fascinating
2: very good point no that's an excellent ayah that you bring out the idea that uh you know the idea that the heart is the primary uh epistemological anatomy of the human being and the heart really refers to is the seat of a person's way of seeing the world, and acting on the world. Because, and and this is the the main point, you cannot reduce human beings to machines. When you understand the human being from the concept of fitra, that human beings are composed of this fitra, like that's what it means to be human being, human nature, and that was the term I had forgotten early, early on when I was talking about terms to use to explain the fitra. Human nature is a great term. It's the idea of what's human, what does it mean to be a human being? That is what the fitra is. Um, And so the idea of, okay, where do we find justification to just trust the fitrah? Like I said, it's the only, um, so we, we talked about how it doesn't make sense to say that the world is meaningless because that's contradictory. It's not an option. I mean, if you want to just say that and say, okay, that's the absurdity, then that's the, 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 know that that's number one, it's irrational. It's immoral as well because you've denied morality com- completely. Like It's a complete rejection of every lived experience that you have. Every time you look out the window and see beauty and feel beauty when you look at a sunset, you know, you're suppressing that feeling and that knowledge that you have that this is beautiful, that ideal and that value because in your head, oh, it doesn't exist. Every single thing that you see in the world of meaning, every meaning that you uh, obtain from, from someone else speaking language, all of that you have to repress when you say this world is meaningless, which is so interesting, which is why the Quran uses the word kufr in regards to quote unquote disbelief, which I think is not a good, uh, accurate translation of the word kufr. Kufr is repressed. It's repression. It's a repressed... Uh, belief, because they had that knowledge and understanding, but they repress it. It's repressed knowledge, and they actively repress it. Um, and so that's the idea of, of, of trusting. So the fitra is goes away from Munchausen's trilemma because it's attached to this concept of meaning, that if you make that decision that, okay, I'm going to live my life of, with meaning, because number one, and this is most people don't think about it in this particular way. At the end of the day, this is like I said, remember when I talked about how people don't need to study this because people naturally understand this. The average person, they look for responsibility to, in, in the world. They look for things to do in the world. They look for ways to be useful. They operate within a particular moral you know, paradigm. They act in the world as if things matter, as if their life is worth something. Like all these different concepts are just natural to people. It doesn't need to be explained to them. And so they, and that's what it means to be human beings. Human beings, when they look at the world, they don't see, you know, X's and, 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 you know, and numbers and mathematical equations. They see a world of meaning when they see, you know, their parents and family and friends, they don't just see biological entities that are like biological accidents. They see meaning behind that. This is my mother. This is my father. This is my friend. There's meaning that comes from that. And that is something that, Uh, A person cannot repress. Every single person lives in that particular way. And what is the source of that meaning? Fundamentally, everything will break down unless a person understands and roots this meaning uh, in the existence of Allah. And also as well, a person cannot truly have a human experience unless they're connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because in the connection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the fulfillment of everything a human being seeks. So this fitra is 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 like a seeking instinct it's a, it's a human being that then seeks after something in this world they're seeking after that which will fulfill their life they're looking after they're seeking after that which will bring value and worth to their life you know every person when they when they're born sometimes a person is tested to the point that they have existential questions of why was i born was i did i deserve to be born was i you know was i you know is this is my life worth anything and that question Every human being has to ask themselves. Some people, yeah. they're just kind of heedless and they just kind of drown away these questions through life of pleasure. But a lot of people have to ask themselves that question. What's the point? Why am I here? And they search for that answer. It's from the fitra, And it is only... So the reason why I'm saying this is because it's not... I, because we're discussing this in a very intellectual, academic way, it's easy to see existence of God as, oh, it's kind of a necessity to meaning, and meaning is kind of the main point. No, 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 no. It's the complete opposite. We're just saying that because of the way that we're discussing it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the fulfillment of every human need. Antumul fuqara Allah, that's what says in the Quran. Human beings yearn for things. They yearn for purpose. They yearn for meaning. They yearn for love. They yearn for worth. They want to know that their, wor- their life is worth something, that the striving and the sacrifice is worth something. They are looking for love and belonging. That's what a human being is. It's not just about logic and, you know, some sort of, you know, algorithm in our mind. A human being is looking for these things. Embedded in those things are all the things we spoke about. But on a real level, the lived experience of a human being is not kind of what we were talking about. It's this pursuit of happiness, this pursuit of meaning, this pursuit of fulfillment. And that is the pursuit of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the source of the fulfillment of our needs. He is al-ghani, he is al-ali, he is as Salam, the source of peace and tranquility. And through his names and attributes and his qualities, that is where a human being really is able to be human they're able to find though they're able to find answers to those questions and they're able to live their life in accordance with that consequences
0: that's a really profound point point. and um, I guess at the other end of the spectrum, uh, before we even actually go to this idea of someone not even having any belief whatsoever, but even within the Muslim sphere of you know how theology and philo- uh, philosophy actually developed. Um, many Muslims came to the conclusion that Mm -hmm. following this idea of reformed epistemology, uh, where, um, you know, there is thesis essentially that says that there is a rationality behind religious belief, Um, this really central idea that's been sort of implemented where, you know, there isn't really this need to appeal to evidence or arguments and you can actually create a premise within itself. I know that we've actually covered most of it. I'm sorry uh, for rambling. Your, your answer is very comprehensive in terms of covering these like angles and actually addressing Yeah, No, no, it's absolutely fine. Um, but I mean, just to sort of have a little focus on reformed epistemology within itself and how deep it actually goes and some of the consequences it can have. I mean, what would you say to those individuals that do fall on that spectrum? and do follow that route of absolute rationality.
2: So Reformed epistemology, according to my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is the idea that uh, religious beliefs do not require uh, rational justification because they emerge from the same, you can say, epistemological level as reason and empiricism, in the sense that what we just talked about, the idea that yeah, So that's the idea of reformed epistemology, which I think is very much in line with the, kind yeah. of what we're saying, which is this idea that you don't need evidence. And actually, you find many quotes from Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah, uh, throughout many of his works, and one of his most famous ones, Madaraj al-Salekeen, as well. Uh, he has a section, interestingly, under the section of chivalry and manliness, he talks about the idea of not needing uh, evidence and, and justification and argument to come to an understanding of truth. As a as a defining feature of masculinity which is very interesting um so he he talks he says how can i uh, search for a proof um in the for the one who is a proof for my own existence in the sense like and you know uh, he talks about the idea of how are you going to prove something whose existence is more obvious than the proof itself this is very much in line with that uh, idea of uh, reformed uh, epistemology yeah. uh, that it doesn't require um, a uh, justification and evidence. All it requires belief in Allah is the decision that a person has to live their life with meaning. That's it. It's literally, it really, at, at its root, then it's the it's the decision to live life.
0: I guess a further question would be with that um, when it becomes synonymous, it becomes synonymous with rationality, right? But a lot of individuals and a lot of academics, they make this appeal that, you know, that's fine. let's negate the fitrah. The fitrah has its place, but let's focus on absolute rational thinking. So there is that level of rational thinking that is required in order for you to believe to begin with, Mm. uh, which effectively actually negates the fitrah in the process. So, I mean, how do we go about actually addressing this issue because it seems to be a very big issue within sort of the focus of uh, the theological debates that took place and uh, even Ibn Taymiyyah himself addresses this many times but within a contemporary uh, perspective one of the things that we mentioned before was that you know we live in a very very literal world where everyone has this level of thinking and to many extents thinking within itself is imposed on others uh, this level of critical criticalness so how do we actually address this that you know negating the fitra and uh, inclining entirely towards rational thinking mm,
2: very good point so yeah you're right in the sense that when people try to prove uh, some or prove anything saying that we're going to take an absolute rationalistic approach they've in essence kind of um you know uh, overstepped the fitra in that sense um, but as i mentioned earlier number one is that um uh, recognizing that yeah. If you take that approach, you are on a kind of a doubtful ground because um, there is no rational proof for your epistemology, so to speak. Like if your goal is, see, it's all about starting out with your goal. Your goal is, I want to make sure all my beliefs are proven rationally. Well, that goal itself, what's the rational proof for that? See, the difference between that and what we're advocating for, which is the idea of a meaningful approach, is that when a person says hey, I want to, you know, live a life of meaning. Mm-hmm. And then a person can ask, oh, what's the meaningful justification? Because that, that is an, it's not a rational argument. It's just, I'm looking for meaning, full stop. It can, so it, it is able to subsist in and of itself. And then it's like, okay, the fitrah is here, and it will bring me what is meaningful. It will provide me what is meaningful. And if you say, oh, well, how do I trust these faculties, if they're, you know, true or not? Well, then you've it goes back to the second point, which is, well, then this world is meaningless because the fa- same faculties you're using to doubt that are the faculties that you are doubting. You're doubting reason with reason, et cetera, et cetera. And in any case, so that's one point to mention the idea that um, absolute rationality does not engender uh, real true knowledge because it just engenders doubt because you can doubt everything, including the first premise. And so everything that emerges from it is just doubtful. Um, secondly, what I'd say is that, like I said, uh, fitra and reason are not at the same level. Uh, reason is a part of the fitra. Like it's 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 it. The reason depends on the fitra for it to uh, be able to be utilized. It depends on this notion that the world is meaningful and that a person wants to seek a meaningful existence. So actually, that reason is subsumed under fitra. Like it's subordinate to the fitra. And it's something that uh, the Indian thinker Allama Iqbal mentions in reconstruction of Islamic uh, thought. He says the idea that faith, under faith is actually subordinate to faith, is reason. Um, and people should not confuse the two. Although you can use reason to uh, kind of dig deeper on a, on a different level of, you know, shifting true false beliefs and, and true beliefs in the sense that, you know, once a person knows, okay, you know, I want to live a meaningful life, then khalas, their reason is able to be, there's justification, there's ontological grounds and epistemological grounds for a person to use their reason. Why? Well, because the person's looking for a meaningful way of looking at the world and reason is a, a way of making meaning about the world. And so it's, it's, there's grounding there. Um, but, it, and so, and then, but it requires the first step of that faith. And faith is not just belief in the absence of evidence. It's the first step. It's the only step that you can take. It's that with, faith really is, this first step of faith, is the commitment to living a meaningful life. That's what faith is. And once that's there, then reason can do its job. So it's subordinate under this faith. If the faith is gone, then reason can't be used anymore because it can be challenged. Um, so in terms of, okay, how do we kind of get this attitude? And just to comment on that attitude, it, it's definitely pervasive and it exists. And it's not just in our times, contemporary times. It's been the case for many centuries. And as early as the Muslims encountered Greek writings, Muslims have had this kind of uh, compulsion and this fascination to try and prove and justify Islamic beliefs and practices um, through. Um, you know uh, uh, greek philosophy through logic and through reasoning etc 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 and you know it's proved to be a very fruitless effort imam ghazali himself rahimahullah um, he mentioned this point i mean when he before he went on his spiritual journey for truth um, he was overcome with doubt and he talks about this in manhaj al-shakk sorry he talks about this in um uh, in Munqad min al-dalala uh, the uh, awakening from uh, misguidance um, and he talks about kind of his way and he talks about the idea that uh, you know uh, uh, logic or reason-based theology doesn't really bring true certainty true certainty and yaqeen uh, is really through is a spiritual pursuit and it's the idea of cleaning up one's heart so that fitra can shine and bring that sense of certainty into a person's mind um, and that kind of just theological theoretical debates don't really lead to any significant, uh, you know, uh, changes on a person's faith, uh, and so I think recognizing uh, number one the, uh, you know, the problem of taking an absolute rationalistic approach and how it's self-defeating, understanding um, the idea that uh, faith is 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 actually the primary, is the most fundamental kind of epistemological level that a person can take, and everything beyond faith and meaning is um, is subordinate to that faith and meaning that iman in. And, and when I say faith and meaning, really, it's iman and Allah. Um, so that, those are the things that kind of need to be explained. And, and the problem is, obviously, as you can see through the course of this podcast, it's very difficult to convey and communicate these ideas. And the reason for that is just quite simply because it's common sense. Common sense is very hard to explain because it's so intuitive and reflexive to us. It's very hard to explain to someone what we've just described, because what we've described is nothing groundbreaking. It's just totally natural. Like no one needs to be told what is good and bad and that we should live good and bad lives. No one needs to be told, oh, you should fulfill your responsibilities. You shouldn't lie. No one needs to be told that. That's just what everyone lives by. Uh, And this is the idea that when you engage in too much philosophical rhetoric and all this stuff, it just leads to all this doubt. Um, And so that's definitely a challenge in regards to communicating kind of what we've done. Now, there's the idea of who do you communicate to? You communicate obviously to people who are dealing with doubt and kind of try to engage with them at this level to try and show them that their approach, their epistemology is flawed and not just flawed. You know, a person might say, Oh, you're just cherry picking because this is not getting to belief in God. Then you don't like it. No, it's not about that at all. It's that it doesn't get to any truth about anything at all, because you can use that. When you use that epistemology and take it to its logical end, everything becomes doubted because you doubt the source of that knowledge itself. That epistemology is self refuting. It's self doubting The epistemology itself makes that epistemology doubtful so that's the problem uh so i mean demonstrating that is important but i think for our children which is very important uh you know for the next generation how do we uh raise them up with kind of a fitra based approach to life and faith um and uh i think a lot of it is about uh you know showing logic and, and reason and and, and science uh, you know in our culture which is kind of heralded it's like the gods and the idols of of this age, uh, showing you know, um, you know, their limitations and understanding them as tools. Uh, and really, at the end of the day, uh, fitrah doesn't need to be taught because it's within all of us. Uh, but um, if it's disease and it's perturbed, and it's another point, obviously, because the diseasing and the perturbing of the fitrah can occur through non-intellectual means, through you know bad moral decisions, through bad company, through spiritual darkness, uh, that can also, Kind of blur a person's fitra in different ways and go into that
1: so with that in mind I think a lot of us uh, especially growing up in the west we've lived in a very like, over-sexualized world we lived in a world where we've been uh, become in, we desensitized to gore and violence and where news right, the amount of news that we intake we're desensitized to so many aspects and now we're desensitized to philosophical thought, we're de- the, like on and on and on right so how do we take you know the fact that many of us might not have like our as you said our fifth row might be blurred how do we clear it
2: very good point that is through the process of tazkiyat nafs purification of the self or actualization of the self to use western kind of terminology um so this is why Uh, uh, Imam al-Ghazali mentioned the idea of the spiritual pursuit or the way of the Sufis is the way to certainty Uh, because the idea from an Islamic perspective is that um, certainty and actually this is the case even from it, you can make the neurophysiological case for this as well certainty actually, and there's an interesting book called On Being Certain um, by, uh, the author escapes me again, apologies, but it's called On Being Certain and it's uh, written by a, a neurologist I believe um, and he um, actually describes um, the idea, it makes the case that certainty is not a property, it's not in accordance with the kind of rational justification or evidentiary justification of an idea. It's an emotional response to a particular idea. So certainty is an emotion. And it show, they show that certainty arises from the limbic areas of the brain which is associated, obviously, with the emotional processing aspect of the brain. And one of the most kind of strongest uh, uh, emotional responses come from the limbic system. Um, and so uh, because of that, people have said, okay, certainty actually is more of an emotional response, which is why you have disorders of certainty in certain mental illnesses. So OCD, for instance, obsessive-compulsive disorder, is a disorder of certainty. It's rather a disorder of doubt. A person does not, is not able to achieve adequate certainty That there's this feeling, oh, by the way, when I said certainty is an emotion and as well, doubt is also emotion rather than being, you know, an actual uh, doubt rather than emerging from, you know, insufficient evidence is actually an emotional response. Um, And so that's why you have disorders of it. And so, you know, emotional OCD is a disorder of doubt, really, where a person is just completely in doubt of, well, I shouldn't say it's a disorder of doubt. It's not really a disorder of doubt. Uh, It's obviously a disorder involving obsessions and behavioral compulsions regarding it. But you can look at it from the perspective of kind of an overactive doubt, overactive doubting, where a person cannot achieve any certainty in the most basic things that have all the evidence there. Like everyone knows evidence. You can even tape record and show these people the most clearest evidence that they lock the door. They will not feel at ease until they go back and check like four or five, six, seven times, depending on how debilitating the compulsions are. Um, you know, washing hands, all these different things. And it even transfers over to areas of wudu and things like that, Um, you know. So this is the idea. Doubt and certainty are kind of these emotional uh, responses. You can also say as well that certainty has a spiritual element to it. And actually there's a book by uh, Andrew Newberg. uh, and He's the founder of what he terms neurotheology, very fascinating field. Uh he is a uh, uh he's a he's a medical doctor, but he I think he's a uh, some sort of uh, specialty regarding the brain. Uh I know he's not a neuroradiologist, but he uh he's um uh, uh he's a he's a medical practitioner. I believe it I think he might be an interventional radiologist uh that uh deals with the brain. In any case, uh his academic interest is in regarding essentially measuring brain activity and correlating it with different spiritual um experiences of many different faiths. And actually, he studied uh, the Muslim salah uh, and dhikr. Uh, and there's a fascinating study you can find where he actually images uh, the brain of a person engaged in salah and compares a person praying with khushur and a person praying without khushur. And he shows that you know there's actually different levels and areas of activity that occur when a person's concentrating on the salah and areas of submission and whatnot. There's actually a decrease in activity in the frontal areas of the brain which is associated with planning executive decisions etc cetera, etc cetera. when a person internalizes the idea of submitting his will to god that area that's a focus with planning and whatnot is actually decreases in activity like actually manifesting that that submission neurologically in their brain uh, and it's and, and and obviously there's therapeutic benefits of that because the uh, you know those areas of the brain are hyperactive in, 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 uh, in anxiety and depression because obviously a person who's very anxious is very focused on trying to plan things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so engaging in that salon, decreasing the activity uh, is something that's very uh, therapeutic for those people. In any case, there, where am I getting at from this? Um, when it comes to certainty as well, they've shown that kind of spiritual uh, uh, you know, knowledge that's achieved through spiritual uh, experiences and actions and behaviors arise from uh, areas of the brain uh, that, carry a very strong sense of conviction and that's why Andrew Newberg said that you know from a scientific perspective uh, there's you know we have to take seriously uh, the knowledge that comes from a person's spiritual experiences uh, I guess where I'm getting at from all this is that the idea that uh, the way when a person's fitra is obscured or whatnot and we're kind of drowned in this in this ghafla and so we're unable to really operate in the world and live life as it's meant to be lived um, and this is what I was getting at earlier the idea that you know, when you talk about fitra, and, you know, it's, you can't talk about fitra from just purely a theoretical perspective because it's not what the fitra is. A fitra merges idea and action, idea and deed together. And that's what iman is in faith. Faith is not just belief. Faith is belief and action together. And so you cannot divorce these two concepts. And so a fitra is a way of living um, and living in this world. And so uh, when, and that's why. And so, first, I ask, well, why is it that when I'm, you know, looking at X, Y, Z or doing X, Y, Z, that's going to affect the way I think? Um, it does because the way you think is determined by how you behave as well. And that goes to the issue, a very famous issue of cognitive dissonance, which a lot of people know about the idea that your actions can affect your beliefs about the world. Um, you know, if there's dissonance created. Uh, so these two, these two things come together. So in any case. When the fitrah is perturbed, when we're kind of living, you know, unspiritual, unspiritually fulfilled lives, lives away from the remembrance of Allah, uh, then our thought is disturbed. We start to think more negatively and, sy- and, uh, and more cynically. You know, that skeptic attitude starts to be thrown at things that make our life very destructive. We start to bring that to our relationships. You know, that's the idea what I'm saying. It's not just about philosophical, right? Like these things carry connotations throughout all aspects of our life. If you act like a skeptic, you're going to be a jerk in, you know, in your relationships with other people. And if that cynicism comes in from that negativity that you feel, from that pessimism, from your kind of, you know, the sinful life that's being lived and the misery that comes with that, because that's the idea. The reason why things are made sinful in Islam, um, you know, are because they're harmful to a person psychologically, physically. And so living a, you know, a sinful life uh, will bring about very negative psychological consequences. And the research is just full of problems of all the different, uh, you know, Uh, vices of this, uh, you know, of of the 21st century, whether it's alcohol and and intoxication or hypersexuality or whatever it may be, Uh, you know, people who live and lead these lives, live miserable lives. And that in turn affects the way that they look at the world. It gives them a pessimistic view of the world. It makes them despair, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's that kind of emotional doubt about God, et cetera, et cetera, coming from a place of, you know, uh, being disturbed really. So the way out of that is spiritual purification. Okay. How do you engage in spiritual purification? That is a whole other podcast, obviously, uh, but really it's, it's, it's something that has been uh, looked at and studied throughout Islamic history. There are so many books and and, uh, uh, and guidance available on this aspect of purifying the heart. And really, it's a process of uh, at its root number one, muhasabah, taking oneself to account, tawbah, returning to Allah um, and uh, you know for anything that's that's, that's evil and adorning oneself oneself with uh, qualities that are beloved to Allah. That's it in a nutshell. Obviously, there's a process behind that and there's a lot of depth behind that and there's a lot of inner work that needs to happen uh, because you're almost doing self-spiritual surgery uh, to try and kind of understand what's the problem in my soul and take out you know, the cancer that's affecting uh, the soul. So uh, that's a whole process in and of itself.
1: I think it's interesting that uh, this wasn't done by purpose, but if you look, now back at the what we just did the, for the podcast, it's as if we expounded upon those last few ayat of uh, Surah Al Imran, mm. the 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 recognizing of meaning that there wasn't creating a bottle. Yes, then to go through what you went through,
2: exactly. the 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 end of Surah Al Imran is so fascinating, and it really summarizes everything we've mentioned in this podcast, and it is the uh, passage that describes like the, the epistemology of, of the Qur'an um, as you mentioned earlier the idea of Subhanaka you know uh, uh, hadha uh the uh, affirmation of meaning in this world and the disassociation from seeing this world is meaningless and then before that Allah describes well what is the state the phenomenological state of that person who arrives at that conclusion it's not just something that you know everyone will arise at Not everyone will be convinced of that. It's who? The people who are the ones who are thinking about Allah, you know, sitting, standing and lying down. Now a person may say, oh, this is circular. Here He believes in Allah. This is the point that believing in the divine reality is a natural thing that everyone believes in. Everyone believes in the divine, that there's something out there. And people who are searching for purpose and meaning, they are thinking about Allah. That's what they're thinking about when they're searching for something more, when they're thinking about these qualities of transcendence, they're thinking about Al-Ali. That's who is the most transcendent. When they're thinking about qualities of truth, they're thinking about Al-Haq, when they're thinking about qualities of love, they're thinking about Al-Wadood, when they're thinking about qualities of justice, they're thinking about al muqsat, and Al-Adl. You know, they're thinking about Allah, right? These people. And then they come to that conclusion when they look at the world around them and they bring all that in. Their fitra outputs what? There's meaning in this world. Not only meaning, by the way, accountability and consequence as well for my actions, which is very interesting because human beings recognize innately. This is why you find cross-culturally this idea that, you know, uh, your actions have consequences, whether that's the karma of the the Hindus um, or the, um, you know, the concept of nirvana with the Buddhists and all these different things, uh, and obviously the Abrahamic faiths. But beyond that as well, there's a concept of your actions have consequences as well, that you have responsibility in this world. And that there is consequences for those responsibilities. So the person actually affirms two things: meaning and accountability. So he says, "Rabbana Rabbana Hada Subhanaka Right. So save us from the punishment of the hellfire, recognizing that there's accountability for actions, and also recognizing I've messed up my entire life. Right. Um, and then what's really fascinating is all Rabbana Inna Munadi That how do they come to faith? So they have this, you know, I don't like to use the word assumption because people use the word, this is the assumption that you're having that there's meaning in the world. It's not, it's an iman, it's faith. It's, this is what faith is. And it's not an, you know, an unproved assumption that you take. As I said, it's the only uh, meaningful and it's the only meaningful, rational, intelligible, you know, uh, uh, it's the only way to to live in this world uh, is with this faith and meaning because otherwise... Life loses its meaning. There's no such thing as life at the end of the day then. Um so إِنَّا سَمَيْنَا مُنَادِيًا يُنَادِي We heard the person calling to faith fa'amanna. Uh, you know, uh فَأَمَنَّا uh, that we heard this person calling to faith saying, believe in your Lord, in what will, what brings your life purpose and this idea that Allah just use that the term uses the term that's the fundamental role of Allah in our life, which is rabb which is why that's the term that we use in du'a, and that's the first term in the Qur'an after the name Allah, Alhamdulillah, that He is Rabb and we are Abd. That's the fundamental relationship we have with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, and so that's described, again, that purpose is then described, that this is what you're here for, to connect with your Rabb. And we believed. There is no need for any evidence or any you know argument, which the Qur'an doesn't give that. The entire Qur'an, does not give that kind of logical argument for that it just merely presents it that this is the case this is what you're looking for and it's addressed to any sincere-hearted individual looking for truth looking for Allah um, so yeah the Surah Al-Imran is a beautiful the end of the Surah Al-Imran is a beautiful passage that really explains kind of everything we've been talking about
1: I think with that uh, we've gone quite a bit and we don't want to overburden the people uh, I think with that leaves us with some homework uh, as well so inshallah we'll continue there's some more Details about this, inshallah, we'll have Zohair for more podcasts uh, so we can uh, further delve into this. As I think we can clearly tell, it's very important. And with that, I think we should end the podcast. JazakAllah khairan.